Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage that was very instrumental in my coming to the Lord. It's also a passage that I think the Lord has used to challenge and encourage me over the, the past few months as well. But before we turn there, or to the actual passage we're going to be covering, I want to share with you a story. It's a story about a little bird named Chippy. Yes, great name for a bird. As the story goes, Chippy was a pet parakeet that was doing what most pet parakeets do, peacefully sitting on his perch, just chirping away. But all that was about to change when Chippy's owner decided to clean his cage with a vacuum cleaner while Chippy was still in it. Removing the attachment from the end of the hose, she put the hose in the cage and started to suck up the mess that had accumulated at the bottom of the cage. When she was just about finished, just about had gotten it done, she received a phone call. And she turned to pick up the phone that was sitting on the table right next to her. And almost immediately after uttering the word hello, she heard this. (laughs) And Chippy was no longer peacefully sitting on his perch. Horrified by what had just taken place, the owner put down the phone and immediately opened up the vacuum cleaner to find an alive but rather stunned Chippy. As you can imagine, Chippy was covered in dust and seed and who knows what all the other kinds of stuff that she had sucked up through all of that. So the owner rushed Chippy to the bathroom sink, whereby she placed him under the running water in an effort to clean him up and get him all squared away. Well, after his shower, the owner saw that her precious little Chippy was soaked and shivering, so she immediately did what any well-intentioned bird lover would do. She broke out the hairdryer and proceeded to blast her chippy with a stream of hot air. Poor chippy never knew what happened to him. Well, word got out about what happened, and a local reporter wrote a brief story about the trials of chippy, and in his follow-up interview with the owner, he asked how chippy was recovering. The owner replied, Well, chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sort of sits there and stares. I mean, who could really blame Chippy, right? The poor little bird was just sitting there like every other day, and then bam, he's sucked in, washed up, and blown out in a matter of minutes. Life as he knew it was radically altered, and his dazed and confused response is understandable for a bird. At times in our lives, we can feel like Chippy, though, can't we? One minute, everything's fine, but in what seems like the blink of an eye, we find ourselves sucked in, washed up, and blown out. So when this happens, when you face a trial that alters life as you know it, how do you typically respond? Do you go into some kind of a comatose state whereby you never seem quite to recover? Do you see yourself as some helpless victim that is suffering at the hands of fate or or maybe even at the hands of some well-intentioned God who means to do well but just can't seem to get it right? Or do you see your trial as something that a perfect, loving God is using in order to conform you more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ? The Bible has much to say about how you and I are to respond to trials as they appear in our lives. And and if you and I are going to grow in our pursuit of Christ's likeness, then there are certain truths that we must cling to, certain lessons that we must learn to embrace. You to open up your Bibles with me to James 1, 2 through 12. But before we read that, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together in the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We thank you so much just for this time that you've given us to be able to open up your word. And I pray right now, Lord, that with whatever things are weighing on our minds, I pray that you would just allow us to step away from those things for a few moments, Lord, to be able to reflect on the teaching of your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. And I pray right now that you will just help us to all be teachable, to hear from your word, and to apply it to our lives, Lord. You are a good God, as, the evident, as evidenced in the sending of your Son. And I pray right now that we would experience your goodness, that our hearts and our minds would be receptive to the things you would teach us. And I pray, Lord, that you will help me to speak clearly and plainly so that your word can go forth with great power. I ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so looking at James 1, 2 through 12, this is what the word of God has to say. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man... Ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Well, brothers and sisters, in this morning's text, we find five lessons that if they are learned, they will help believers to find joy as they journey through this life. And as we uncover each of these lessons, let them have their joyous effect in conforming us more and more into the glorious image of the one who came to redeem us and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So with that, the first lesson that you and I must learn if we are to grow in Christ-likeness is there is a right response. There is a right response. Let's look back at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. You know, James doesn't waste a whole lot of time beating around the bush Rather than offer us some hints or some suggestions or maybe make some innuendos, he just jumps right in and he tells his readers what they need to do. And the people he was writing to were well acquainted with trials and difficulties. They understood what it was like to be in a trial, fleeing the persecution that faced them in Jerusalem. Many of these believers were seeking refuge in Judea and Samaria, according to Acts 8.1 as well as other Jewish communities around the Mediterranean, like in Acts eleven nineteen through 20. They were people that were not always well-received in their efforts to resettle, mainly because there was something strange about them. They were different. They were following this, this new religion, as it were. And they were committed to Jesus Christ and, and living for Jesus Christ. And as a result, many of them became exploited and were robbed of what little possessions they did have. Some were dragged off into court, and and still others were manipulated by the wealthy Gentiles that were around them. You see, these people were not simply 
undergoing trials that would determine their social or economic status, as it were. They were undergoing trials that were a matter of life and death. And yet James writes to them and tells them to consider it all joy. When James calls his readers to consider it all joy, he is not in any way stating that trials are joyful or that we should throw a party in the midst of our trials. He knew, much like the writer in Hebrews, that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, according to Hebrews 12.11. Fully aware of the fact that trials are painful, James calls all believers everywhere, though, to rejoice, not because the pain is pleasant, but because our understanding of life is shaped by what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross at Calvary. Amen? Our joy does not rest in our circumstances, but rather is grounded in the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. For James, to consider it all joy means to make a deliberate and a very careful decision to look beyond the pain, to look beyond the difficulties of this life, to the glory that awaits each and every one of us in heaven. You see, far too many of us look, at, look for joy in this life only. We live for and, and we pursue a bunch of things that the Bible says are, are passing away, and yet that's how we try to find our happiness, our joy. We let the lures and the enticements of this world lure us away from the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. We, we waste valuable time and, and effort looking for joy in things rather than in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, just stop and ask yourself, when is the last time that I rejoiced in my salvation? When is the last time that I sat and pondered the new life that is mine in Christ Jesus? See, brothers and sisters, the word of God is perfectly clear that our our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. In 2 Corinthians 7, 4, Paul said to the Corinthian church, I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. In Acts 5, 40 and 41, we're told of how the Sanhedrin, on Gamaliel's advice, called the apostles in, they flogged them, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Get this, James does not call us to rejoice for the trial but rather he calls us to rejoice in the trial. He's calling each of us to find joy in the midst of our trials. Whenever they occur, whatever they may be, notice the language he uses when he says this, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. See, the idea here isn't that if you're going to face a trial, The idea is you're going to face a trial. We just don't know when it's going to be. So be ready for it. And when it comes, instead of letting it zap you of your joy in life, rather rejoice in the fact that God is using that trial to shape you and to mold you. Trials will come. They just will. So let us never be taken by surprise when they occur. I mean, none of us should ever think that we are somehow immune to trials hitting in our lives. As D.A. Carson puts it in his book entitled, How Long, O Lord? He says, the truth of the matter is that, we all, as the, is that all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. Any of you older saints attest to that? I get a big amen out of that, right? The older we get, right, the more we experience living in this broken world, the more we experience the suffering 
and the hardships and the difficulties that come with it. In 1 Peter 4.12, we're told to not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Living in a fallen world exposes us to all of the ramifications of sin entering the world. We, we, we live in it. In this life, we are going to encounter trials, brothers and sisters, and these trials will be various. And James uses an adjective here for various. that It's not meant to describe the number of trials that one will encounter because we all may encounter different numbers of trials. But what he's trying to get at, he's trying to get at the diversity of these trials. They will be multifaceted. They're, they're going to come in many different shapes and forms. And, and what a trial I may go through may look totally different from a trial you're going through and vice versa. But they're still trials. They're still hard. They're still difficult. They're still weighty. They are, as one commentator puts it, understood to include both the difficulties that are common to all people as well as the specific adversities that Christians must face as a result of their faith. There is no trial that comes upon the believer's life, however, and get this, that is somehow outside of God's sovereignty. There is nothing that flies under his radar that catches him off guard. So whatever trial, whatever your multicolored, multifaceted trial might be, you find yourself there and ask yourself, why is this? And I'll tell you why. There's a sovereign, loving God that is working in that trial for your good and for his glory. And that is why we consider it all joy. Because God is using that to change us. So whether you're suffering from the, some, some type of sickness, loneliness, bereavement, disappointment, whether your world has been turned upside down by cancer, the straying off of a spouse or child, the loss of a loved one, the losing of a job, Whatever trial you may find yourself standing face to face with right now, know that God is calling you, if you are a believer, to find your joy in Him, not in your circumstance. But the only way this can happen is if we develop a deep-seated confidence that God is in control, that He knows exactly what He's doing, and whatever that may be, it is ultimately for His glory and for our good. Every trial is an opportunity to re-experience the grace that has been bestowed upon us through the Son. Every trial reminds us that we are not as in control of things as we would like to think that we are. Every trial helps us to more clearly see our need to trust in the sovereignty of God and not our own limited view of things. There is a right response that you and I are to have in trials, and that being joy. And while we should never rush into trials or even seek them out, for they will surely come, we must learn to rejoice in the midst of them. We must learn to more fully trust the one who has allowed these trials to come into our lives. Now, some of you may be sitting out there wondering why a good God would allow his people to go through so many difficult trials in this life. I mean, what is the point? Why do we need these trials? What is their ultimate purpose? Well, the answer to these questions can be found in the second lesson that you and I must learn if we are to grow in Christ-likeness, and that being there is a purpose in trials. There is a purpose in trials. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
See, the reason that you and I are to respond with joy in the midst of our trials is because those trials have a spiritual value. They are a key component in the process that conforms us more and more into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. And as difficult as they are, they are absolutely essential to our growth. The Prince of Preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, had this to say about trials. Many men owe the grandeur of their lives to their tremendous difficulties. How radically different many a life would be had it not been forged in the crucible of trials. F.B. Meyer offers us some keen insight into the immense value of this forging process, as he explains. He writes, A bar of iron worth $2.50. When wrought into horseshoes is worth $5. If made into needles... It is worth $175. If into penknife blades, it is worth $1,625. If made into springs for watches, it is worth $125,000. What a trial by fire that bar must undergo to be worth this. But the more it is manipulated and the more it is hammered and passed through the heat, beaten, pounded, and polished, the greater its values. See, brothers and sisters, trials as difficult as they may be, are absolutely essential because they set in motion a two-step process that moves us from being an unpolished bar of iron to becoming a polished watch spring. The first step is to clearly see that the testing of your faith produces endurance. To better get our hands around endurance, it may be helpful to briefly explore some of the the slight nuances of the word. The literal translation of the word is, is remaining under. But the best-received translation seems to come from J.H. Ropes, who translated it as staying power, staying power. Now, I don't know how many of you like to swim, but I, I, I think we can get a fairly accurate understanding of endurance as we liken it to holding your breath underwater. See, when I was a kid growing up, I had a friend that had a pool. And we used to love to go to his house, especially over the summer, and just go swimming in his pool. And when we'd start up in the summer and we'd start swimming on a regular basis, we used to kind of have these contests to see how far we could possibly go underneath the water. Anybody ever do that? You know, just kind of show off your manhood or your womanhood or whatever, just to kind of say, you know, I can go farther than you. Well, this is what we did, right? And so we would just kind of see how far we could go. And, you know, when the summer just got underway and we got started, uh, we might be able to get like two laps out of it. You know, just kind of sucking in the air and then just, you know, and I was a short little round kid, so trying to stay under the water was really hard. So I had to work really hard to stay under the water. But, you know, two laps, you know, we were doing pretty good. But you know what happened as the summer went on? As the summer went on and we subjected ourselves uh, to this very unpleasant uh, task of depriving yourself of oxygen, you know, we got, we went from two laps to being able to go to three to even three and a half laps. Right? And all of that came because our endurance increased. That as we subjected ourselves to this unpleasant experience, it actually built us up and it built up our endurance. And this is true for just about any type of learned discipline, is it not? If you want to get better at doing something, you work through the failures. Right? You keep going even when it's hard and it doesn't seem like you're ever going to come, that it's ever going to come together. Think about how many things you would not be able to do if you didn't practice endurance. I mean, if you just simply stopped trying because it was so hard. I mean, most of us would never learn how to walk, right? Let alone run if when we were babies, we quit after our first fall. Bringing it into the spiritual realm. How many of us would still be Christians 
If we quit right after we failed to live our lives like we knew we should, or as soon as life got difficult and we started suffering for following Christ, how many of us would still be Christians if we didn't endure, if we didn't press on? But endurance is just the first step of James' two-step process. We, we do not endure just for the sake of enduring. No, endurance is to actually lead us somewhere. It's to, it's to do something. It's to actually change us and to make us like something. And that something is like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. James 1.4 goes on to say, And let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, the more you and I respond rightly to trials, the more we remain under them, trusting God, leaning on Him, on his grace and his goodness, the more we will become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the end result of endurance. This is why we endure. James states the outcome both positively and negatively. Positively speaking, endurance is to lead us to be perfect and complete. Negatively speaking, endurance is to make us lacking in nothing. Much could be said regarding each of these words, but the main point that James is really attempting to to make and what he's trying to get across is the fact that when you and I, in the midst of whatever, whatever multicolored trial we're going through right now, when we respond with confidence in God, the Bible says that we will be changed. We will be different as a result of going through that trial and that difficulty. God will use that trial not just to change us randomly, but to change us so that we become more like Jesus Christ. He will use those hardships to, to move us, to grow up. Right? We will move out of the realm of spiritual infancy and into the realm of spiritual maturity as we endure the various trials that come our way. So in light of these truths, it's no wonder that James tells us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Because as we do, brothers and sisters... We more closely resemble the one who is complete and total perfection, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Having learned that there is a right response in trials and that there is a purpose in trials, we're now ready to look at the third lesson that you and I must learn if we are to grow in Christ-likeness, and that is there is help in trials. There is help in trials. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought, to, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I don't know if you're like me, and I hope you're not, but you know, if you are, I find myself, when I find myself in the midst of the trial, I find it incredibly difficult to not go to God with questions like, why me, God? Why, why are you allowing me to go through this? Why do I have to be the one to suffer or to, to go through this? Or, or another one of my favorites is, God, help, right? You get desperate enough and you finally just cry out to God, God, help, I'm in a mess and I need you to get me out of this mess again. God, please help me. I mean, praying to God in the midst of our trials, for most of us, usually isn't an issue, but praying and asking him for the right things, that's a whole other thing, right? Because so many times our right thing from God is, God, just get me out of this. That's what I need, God. I need you to get me out of this. So we don't have a problem going to him for help, but we do have a problem asking him for the right type of help. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you prayed for him to give you wisdom 
in the midst of your trial? When's the last time you prayed for God to increase your understanding of him or, or what he might be trying to teach you as you underwent your particular trial? See, prayer is the proven assistance for getting the wisdom that you and I so desperately need. I mean, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. This, brothers and sisters, is the means by which God has given us to obtain wisdom. So here's a question we need to ask ourselves. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? A.T. Robertson calls wisdom the practical use of knowledge. Douglas Moo tells us that wisdom is the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. And Peter Davids tells us that wisdom is closely associated with understanding the divine plan and responding to it. See, here's a point. It is possible to have knowledge and still lack wisdom, is it not? And that's why in 1 Corinthians 8.1 we're told, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. You could have all of the knowledge in the world. You could be blessed with a, a memory that is you know, just able to lock in every detail. You could be blessed with that and yet still not have wisdom. You could still fail to practically use that knowledge for God's glory. And therefore, it could make it useless and unedifying. But knowledge that is applied to our lives, knowledge that is lived out in a way to bring glory to God, that is knowledge that is useful and edifying. Without question, we all need wisdom. And the Bible makes it perfectly clear that a, a proper reverence and a, and a relationship with God is necessary if we're to have true God-honoring wisdom. In Job 28.12, Job himself asked the question, But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Well, he then goes on to let us know that it cannot be bought with the finest gold or the best of silver, nor can precious stones or gems acquire it. No, if we're to acquire wisdom, we will not find it anywhere apart from God. This is why James instructs us to ask God for it. And notice... Notice how graciously God gives to those who reverence him. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is the God that we serve, a God who gives generously and without making us feel unworthy for asking. It has been said that God's generosity is measured by what he designs and not by what we deserve. Jesus taught about the willingness of the Father to give to those who ask in the Sermon of the Mount. Listen to what he says in Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Or what man is there among you who, when he, his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? See, we have a Father in heaven who loves us more than you and I could ever begin to understand. He delights in blessing His children and giving them all that is necessary for them to live for His glory and for their good. As such, we need to make it a point to commune with Him in prayer every single day. We need to humble ourselves and come to Him in prayer and ask Him to help, and He will give it to us. But when we go to Him in prayer, get this, we, when we use this proven assistance, this, this help 
we're told that we're to go to him in faith. We must go to him in faith, believing that he is capable, that he is willing to give us the wisdom that we seek, that he is good and he wants to bless us. James 1, 6 through 8 shows us the danger of going to him in any other manner. Listen. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. I'd like you to take a minute with me and just kind of reflect back on, on one of Jesus' miracles so we can maybe get a picture of this in our, in our minds a little bit. The miracle whereby he calms the raging sea that's found in Mark 4, 35 through 41. Almost out of nowhere, we're told that this fierce storm arises and the boat that contains Jesus and his disciples starts getting bombarded by wave after wave. In fact, we're told that the boat is getting so bombarded and it hits so strongly that the boat actually begins to fill with water. It actually begins to start to sink a little bit. Now, once you get that picture in your head of how that must have looked, right? The wind is blowing, the seas all stirred up, it's... it's hitting the boat, it's, it's kicking water into the boat, it's filling the boat up. It's out of control. In fact, it's so out of control that a bunch of burly fishermen are running around like a bunch of schoolgirls screaming their heads off that they're going to die, right? I mean, they're scared. The storm's huge, and they're, they're scared. So get that picture in your head. Now quickly switch gears and imagine Jesus waking up and rebuking the wind and saying to the sea, Hush, be still. The sea becomes perfectly calm. Picture that. Perfectly calm sea. This calm stage is how, we are, is how we are when we go to God in faith and ask Him for wisdom, how we are to be. This is how James says we are to come to God with a, a singularly focused mindset that is fully, completely trusting in Him. Our faith is like the sea. In that picture, steady and constant. That's how it needs to be. But my fear, brothers and sisters, is that far too many of us are like that first image that came to our mind. Right? The winds blowing and the seas all over the place. We, we approach God with, with doubt. Maybe doubting that prayer works. Maybe even doubting uh, whether God exists or if he does exist, is he even good? to allow something like this to happen to us. James says that if we're like that, then we're double-minded and we shouldn't expect anything from God, which seems to fall in line with other teachings from the Bible whereby Jesus taught that those who forgive can confidently ask for forgiveness, but those who are unforgiving shall themselves not be forgiven, according to Matthew 6, 14 and 15, or that those who are unmerciful will find no mercy, Matthew 18, 23 through 35. You see, for James, faith is the key that unlocks the spiritual resources that are available to every believer. As it says in Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, prayer is the help that is ours in the midst of trials. And if you and I are to be comforted in it, in our trial, then we must come to God in faith, without doubting, believing that He can and will give us the wisdom that we need so that we might become more Christ-like in the midst of that trial that He has sovereignly brought our way. 
Which now brings us to the fourth lesson that you and I must learn if we are to grow in Christ-likeness. There is a paradox in trials. There is a paradox in trials. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. See, Webster defines a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet perhaps is true. The Bible is full of many paradoxes, is it not? For example, we're told that there is strength and weakness, 2 Corinthians 12.10, that there is life in death, Romans 8.13, that the slave is free and the free is a slave, 1 Corinthians 7.22. There are many others, but we get this idea of paradox. We see it all throughout Scripture. And in our text, we find a paradox whereby we find the rich poor and the poor rich. Let us look at each of these. And we'll start by looking at the rich poor who are portrayed in verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Now, it's evident that James has no pity for this brother of humble circumstances. He doesn't feel sorry for him because he's, he doesn't have a lot of money. Because he fully understands that this person is a brother, right? He understands that this is a believer. So the very fact that he is in Christ enables him to see that this person really, biblically speaking, is truly rich. Romans 8.17 says this, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. See, the person of low economic status can truly glory in his high position in Christ. Regardless of his current economic portfolio, a day is coming whereby he will be rich beyond measure. He will be a fellow heir with Christ. This is wealth. And this brother is rich beyond measure, not because he has all of the world's resources, but he has all of the spiritual blessings that have been poured out on him from the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And just like it's true for this this. Uh, rich, poor fellow, it's true for every one of us. If we are in Christ, we have wealth beyond measure that is coming to us, that is promised to us by the mere fact that we are in Christ. But you and I live in a culture, do we not, that determines a person's worth based on their, their portfolio, their economic status. James makes it perfectly clear that this standard of measure is not so in Christ. If you are someone who does not have a lot of money, but you have trusted in the work and person of Jesus Christ, take heart. You are a fellow heir with Christ, with all of the rights, with all of the privileges that go along with being a fellow heir. That, brothers and sisters, is great news. That is very good news. And we need to live in light of that. So even when trials come at you in this life, possibly even financial trials, just remember that a day is coming, and in a sense it has already entered in, whereby you will have great riches in Christ Jesus. So let me encourage you to labor all the more in accordance to Matthew 6.20, to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Glory in the paradox that you are among the rich poor and praise God for all that he has done to make you rich in him. The next group we see in the poor rich, the next group that we see are the poor rich. 
And they're portrayed in verses 10 through 11. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And sisters, the lures of wealth can make it very difficult for someone who is rich in this life to really truly see their spiritual poverty. In just about every culture that exists, cash is king. And the more you have, the harder it becomes to see your situation accurately. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus to see what he must do in order to obtain eternal life walked away sad. Why? Because his wealth meant more to him than following Jesus. Jesus warns us time and time again about the dangers of wealth. In Matthew 6, 24, he tells us that we cannot serve both God and wealth. In Matthew 13, 22, he warns us of the deceitfulness of wealth. Riches can blind a person from seeing their need for a savior. Their wealth can actually become a stumbling block because it seems to give them all that they want, all that they need. But as we've seen, this fails to deal with their spiritual condition. For a rich man is just as spiritually needy as a poor man. But oftentimes his wealth prevents him from seeing this. He can't see that. He sees himself in a different way. But his spiritual condition is the same as a poor man. We all come to to Christ on an even playing field. James calls for the rich man to glory in his humiliation. That means that he is to look and to remember the depths that Christ has rescued him from. This means that he is to see himself as spiritually bankrupt and in need of Jesus' deposit of righteousness into his account. As the rich brother does this, as he views his life accurately, he will glory in his lowliness. See, trials come to both the rich and the poor. The amount of money that you possess, trials, no... no, uh, Limitations there. As each one views himself rightly before God, though, he would be able to bear up under that trial and thus bring glory to God. And James shows us that there is a paradox in trials, which now brings us to our fifth and final lesson that you and I must learn if we are to grow in Christ likeness. There is an approval in trials. There is an approval in trials. Let's look at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It is here that the believer finds a great and wonderful promise. As you and I learn to endure the trials of this life, as we grow in maturity and Christ-likeness, as we cry out to God for wisdom such that we might live rightly, as we realize our true position before God, there is a promise of eternal life whereby we will live in unhindered fellowship with God. What an amazing time that will be, a time in which there will be full understanding and full clarity. Right now, brothers and sisters, we live with a veil, do we not? We struggle to understand what God's up to and, and why things go the way that they do and what God could possibly be up to. But a day is coming when we're going to see things clearly. Paul Firms this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. As you and I persevere, as we trust God, 
through the various multifaceted, multicolored trials that we'll face in this life, there is great hope in knowing that in the end it will all be worth it, right? I mean, we've, we've read the Bible. We know how it ends. We know that Jesus wins. We know that it all works out. And yet we have this difficulty right now that we have to, we have to work through. And we have to rest in that future promise. We have to rest in the fact that, that there's an approval in these trials, that eventually it's all going to work out and God is going to bring us into this to where we're going to be in his family and we're going to be with him forever and we're going to be his children forever. I find great courage in the words that Paul penned to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18, and we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See, there, there's a future for us in Christ. And it's a glorious future. It's a wonderful future. And as you and I endure, as we continue to trust Christ in this life, that will carry us right into the life to come as we rest in what he's done for us, as we rest in this glorious gospel where Christ died for sinners like us. A day is coming where he's coming back and we're going to be with him. And that will be a wonderful day, brothers and sisters. And there will be, there will be an approval in that day. And our trials help lead us into that. Help us to trust him more. Help us to rest in him more. I came across a poem by an unknown author that I think does a nice job of closing up this last section. It's called Out of the Darkness, and it goes like this. Out of the dark, forbidding soil, the pure white lilies grow. Out of the black and murky clouds descends the stainless snow. Out of the crawling earthbound worm, a butterfly is born. Out of the somber shrouded night, behold, a golden morn. Out of the pain and stress of life, the peace of God pours down. Out of the nails, the spear, the cross, redemption and a crown. This morning we've learned five lessons from James that are meant to grow us in Christ-likeness. We've learned that there is a right response in trials. There is a purpose in trials. There is a help in trials. There is a paradox in trials and there is an approval in trials. I trust that God will enable you to use these five lessons such that you might become more and more conformed into his glorious image and thus experience the joy that is ours as we continue along this journey toward home in heaven with our great God and King. And Tim's going to come up and close us with a closing song, but let me pray for us before he comes up and just ask that the Lord would help us to apply these things to our life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are a good God, and I thank you that you do not just abandon us in our trials. You have so much to to teach us and so much to shape us through those trials. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to learn these lessons to, and to apply them into our lives, that we might live wisely and we might live in such a way as to make much of Jesus Christ and all that we say and do. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning, and I pray that you would just bless them. I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them. I pray that you would allow this message from today, Lord, to sink into their hearts and minds so that as they come across trials, they would be reminded 
of these great truths that are found in your word. We thank you that you are God who is patient with us and teaches us and instructs us so that we might endure and that we might become more and more like Jesus Christ. Thank you for not just leaving us to, our, to ourselves, but rather thank you for stepping into this world and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Father, thank you for sending your Son. May we live to exalt him in all that we say and do. And may we be a people that are shaped rightly by the trials you bring into our lives. We thank you and praise you in Christ's precious name. Amen.